Thank you, Dr. Holmes, for inviting me to come and be here in this lectureship. I've always enjoyed my visits here to this campus and seeing the people. When you graduate from high school, uh, you think that all your friends are gone and lost. You'll never have any friends again. You get to college, and if you go all the way through college, you have a variety of friends that you develop in different ways, and you get out of college, and you think all is lost, and you'll never have any more friends. And then you get into certain callings and certain places, and you develop friendships that are even deeper than all of those because you're older, more experienced. You have a value system that is uh, matured, and you form friendships and relationships that are even uh, deeper. And then as you retire, you think, well, now all is gone. I'll never have any more friends. Uh, they've all, and then the Lord opens up opportunities to uh, meet people and to be with people of like mind and deep concern for the glory of Christ. And again, friendships are formed uh, on the basis of great uh, values and eternal commitments. Uh, it's been one of the uh, pleasures of my last five years to meet and to know Dr. Holmes, to see his spirit. Uh, and though our contacts have been separated by many months, uh, nevertheless, the unity of spirit and unity of heart and so many things has made him endeared to me, and I deeply appreciate your ministry, my brother. Uh, I don't know who is to be congratulated most for their courage for the seminary for inviting a non-landmark historian to present these lectures or for a non-landmark historian to put himself in the position of presenting them. But I do hope that by the end of this, we will all have a deeper appreciation for the commitment to truth that drives us, uh, that our personal evaluations of where we stand uh, will become clear without prejudice, and that uh, our desire to be fully used in the work of the kingdom, to pursue personal sanctification, to pursue usefulness in the service of the gospel, will be enhanced by our being together. This first lecture is on the origin and original goals of landmarkism in its Southern Baptist context. The reading that Dr. Holmes gave from Lumpkin is a very, very good summary of what I'm going to give an expansion of during this time. Landmarkism as a distinctly self-conscious movement had its origin in the experience of J.R. Graves. I call it a distinctly self-conscious movement because Graves was deeply aware that his energy and ecclesiological perceptions changed the way that Baptists negotiated their view of the local church in relationship to other Baptist churches and in relationship to other denominations that considered themselves as manifestations of that body that Jesus called my church. In 1880, in his preface to Old Landmarkism, What Is It?, he wrote, I put forth this publication now, 30 years after inaugurating the reform, to correct the manifold misrepresentations of those who oppose what they are pleased to call our principles and teachings, and to place before the Baptists of America what old landmarkism really is. Later in that preface, 
In what is a cross between a candid admission and a startling claim, Graves wrote, I think it is no act of presumption in me to assume to know what I meant by the old landmarks, since I was the first man in Tennessee and the first editor on this continent who publicly advocated the policy of strictly and consistently carrying out in our practice those principles which all true Baptists in all ages have professed to believe. Thus, in this claim, he presented a doctrinal matrix that he contended has always been the Baptist position, as at that time, without any adherent in Tennessee, until he began to express it, and without any agreement among all the editors of Baptist papers on the continent, until he began to solicit approval to his extrapolation from Baptist ecclesiology. Graves' first thoughts about these issues came when in 1832 he saw his mother and sister immersed by an ill-humored and condescendingly, uh, condescending paedo-baptist minister. At that same meeting, this minister sprinkled others, poured water on others. Graves thought that this was a strange application of the scripture assertion of one baptism. This event occurred when Graves was 12 years old, having been born in 1820. By the age of 15, in 1835, Graves was converted and left his congenital congregationalism and became a part of the North Springfield Baptist Church in Vermont by baptism. The family moved to Ohio in 1839, where Graves, clearly a prodigy of learning and communication, taught school. In 1841, he moved to Kentucky, where he had charge of the Clear Creek Academy and united with the Mount Freedom Baptist Church. In that situation, he taught school for four years and, according to contemporary reports, taught himself a new language each year, along with a wide regiment of reading and an attempt to master a knowledge of the entire Bible. He taught for six hours a day and studied for eight, making the Bible as the Cathcart Encyclopedia says, making the Bible the man of his counsel and Paul his instructor in theology. His zeal for truth and extraordinary gifts of learning and communication led the Mount Freedom Church to license him to preach without his knowledge. A sense of inadequacy indisposed him to undertake any official ministry activity at this time. In spite of his hesitations, however, he had a deep sense of the goodness of the ministry of the gospel, and a deeply embedded sense of oughtness in gospel proclamation. Sensing this, his, stir, his church, still without his seeking such, ordained him to gospel ministry. Dr. Ryland Thompson Dillard, an esteemed Baptist of Kentucky, serving as chair of the ordaining presbytery and preaching the sermon. Graves moved to Nashville in 1845, where he became a member of the First Baptist Church, with R.B.C. Howell as pastor. Within a short time, he became pastor of the Second Baptist Church. He was there hardly a year, but while there, his mother applied for membership in the church. Recalling her baptism and his struggles with its validity, he asked Howell his opinion in the matter. According to Graves, Howell opined that her baptism by immersion, though at the hands of a paedo-baptist minister, was valid and she should be received into membership. 
This prompted Graves into a fervent study of the question of the authority, proper authority for baptism. Asking the question, has any organization, save a scriptural church, the right to authorize anyone, baptized or unbaptized, to administer church ordinances? Deciding this negatively, along with some corollary questions, he instructed his church in these principles and consequently baptized both his mother and his sister into membership in the Second Baptist Church. Graves soon returned to First Baptist Church and became an associate editor of The Baptist, which changed its name in 1847 to The Tennessee Baptist. The paper was filled with short sermons, many news items from a variety of locations, Sunday school helps, advertisements for sarsaparilla, and long polemical engagements with other groups. An extended defense of Baptist views against old-school Presbyterianism early in 1851 gave several columns for several weeks in a row to refute representations of Baptist views as unscriptural and dangerous, tenfold more dangerous than outright infidelity. Graves noted that Presbyterians denounce immersion as wicked, blasphemous, immoral, and indecent with one breath and practice it the next moment rather than lose a member. He was confident that if Presbyterian deceit and delusion was exposed by a solid, united confrontation from the Baptists, that it would expire in 10 years. These things concerned Baptists in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi, as well as Tennessee. The cause is one, he wrote, and he had confidence that every Baptist who reads this paper will interest himself in this important subject and interest all around him, professors and non-professors. Graves asserted that one simultaneous effort on our part will achieve a crowning victory to our cause, the cause of truth, and do more toward settling the baptism and communion questions than all the discussions of the last century. He was convinced that if Paedo-Baptists were forced to act consistently with the positions they took relative to Baptists and immersion, that Paedoism will give its last death throw in less than 10 years. The leaders of this people have caused them to err, and they will perish together. The aggressive posture of an old-school Presbyterian editor in a defense of infant sprinkling as the only doctrinally sound practice of baptism that also involved a historical slur on Baptists as well as an incredulously obtuse theological misjudgment raised Graves' determination for an all-out confrontation to a point of combustion. The old school editor cited a book by A.A. Campbell in which he contended the doctrine of baptism as practiced by the Anabaptists, both as to subjects and mode, has no analogy with the doctrine of justification by faith. It is not the thing, nor is it the sign of the thing. Immersion and the rejection of the right of children to baptism very naturally go together. They are twin sisters of one common parent, the offspring of one man's sufficiency to do something meritorious in his salvation and consistency requires that they stand or fall together. So baptism by immersion of believers only means that you don't believe in justification by faith. Graves' remark, read the above, 
Baptists of Tennessee in the Southwest, read the above. Could the pen of slander record a fouler calumny upon us than is contained in the above? A slander that was hurled back with indignation by the Baptists of that age and reiterated in every succeeding one. A slander from which honest historians have exonerated us. And yet, Paedo-Baptists, professedly learned ones, are publishing it from pulpits and press. Father, forgive them, though they know what they do. Graves also found the old school group quite condescending toward Baptist writings and arguments. No intelligent man of extensive learning, so the article claimed, can cast his eye over the tracts and pamphlets that the missionary Baptists of the Southwest are diffusing like a flood over the land without feeling astonished at their recklessness and their want of moral integrity. Elevating himself even further in his punitive and dismissive posture, toward Baptist doctrinal intelligence, the writer warned, their misquotations and perversions of distinguished authors are stereotyped and multiplied through the land and swarm upon us like the frogs of Egypt coming into our churches and kneading troughs. Well, Graves set forth a few queries that indicate a strong call to action. What shall we say? Shall we be justifiable in the sight of either God or man to lift no voice of remonstrance against, no denial of all this? Must the world understand that we assent to all of our preserving a stated silence when such charges are cast into our teeth, branded upon our foreheads by a whole professedly Christian denomination? Never, no, never, the rack, the prison, nor the stake and burning faggot, nor the reddening chain should suffice to seal our lips or deter us from bearing testimony to the truth. We call the world to witness this day that we hurl back the denial of the above into the teeth of the editor of the Southern Presbyterian. Surely it is not the Baptists who plague the land with false teaching, but the editor's argument that sprinkling of infants as just An immersion of believers is false. Graves pressed him with an accusation of falsehood and slander for his low-minded charges against missionary Baptists, both in character and in public discourse. Graves met the charges with unqualified denial and and pronounced them as gross falsehoods, slanders, and calumnies. He called on the editor to step forth and prove or retract his charges or bear upon his brow a mark more dark and terrible than that of Cain, a slanderer and calumniator of Christians. Graves then distilled from the offending article 13 false charges which carried with them the necessary implication that missionary Baptists clearly are not Christians. The determination to fight back had settled deep into the conscience of Graves. Various objections to Paedo-Baptist ecclesiology prompted by the hostile treatment of Baptists at their hands, began to coalesce into a tightly knit system in the next five years. Also, he observed a phenomenon in Baptist life that puzzled him, as it had in 1832. In spite of the hostility of Paedo-Baptist ministers to immersion, they sometimes immerse believers. Was it right for Baptist churches to receive these persons so immersed as members of their churches, if they applied? Also, did not the present hostility to Baptist practices on the part of Paedo-Baptists 
and their historic engagements in persecution of Baptists render them unacceptable as Christian ministers. As these elements of of thought synthesized in Gray's mind, they culminated in several, several operative principles called by Robert A. Baker the three principal emphases of the landmark movement. Each of these principles had a variety of applications as those so convinced interacted with the denominational life of Southern Baptists. Before looking more closely at the historical context of their development, we will isolate these principles as helpful in our understanding the particular spheres of controversy that developed in the next decade and then settled into a more broadly experienced denominational consciousness. The first of these was the authoritative nature of the local and visible New Testament congregation. In the context of discussing the issue of local church discipline, Graves argued, each church on earth has an unquestioned right to receive whom she pleases to her fellowship, to elect and commission her own officers, and possesses the inalienable and sole right and duty to administer the ordinances. Fundamental to those exclusive rights uh, is this, that each church was alone commissioned by Christ to preserve and preach the gospel. If the church, Gray's proposed, was commissioned to preserve and preach the gospel, then it is certain that no other organization has a right to preach it to trench upon the divine rights of the church. A negative application of this principle is the refusal to call other denominations churches. They are religious societies of man-made structure, but not churches of Christ's founding. Graves saw it as an important element of the landmark mission to protest and to use all of our influence against the recognition on the part of Baptists of human societies as scriptural churches by affiliation, ministerial or ecclesiastical, or any alliance or cooperation that is susceptible of being apparently or logically construed by our members or theirs or the world into a recognition of their ecclesiastical or ministerial equality with Baptist churches. The true local church cannot even delegate to her officers those tasks given her by Christ, such as examining and baptizing members into her fellowship without her personal presence and action upon each case, or selecting persons qualified to take the gospel to the nations. This led, of course, to a suspicion of all general bodies as they had a tendency to concentrate power in boards or give to a combination of churches powers reserved for the local churches alone. Also, qualifications for participation in conventions, when put on some basis other than local church primacy, would be a violation of this principle. Participation must not usurp the authority and autonomy of the local church by transferring through financial qualifications to individuals, associations, denominational structures, those prerogatives given by Christ to his churches. Second, emphasis was given to a conviction that the kingdom of Christ was made up of the aggregate of local churches that were true churches of Christ. For graves, this meant that the kingdom of Christ consisted of Baptist churches only. Graves wrote, The organization Christ first set up, which John called the bride, 
in which Christ called his church constituted that visible kingdom. And today, all of his true churches on earth constitute it. If his kingdom will stand to the end, and it must, according to his word, then true and uncorrupted churches have stood since his kingdom cannot exist without true churches. The third emphasis, correlative to the others, is that true churches must possess all the doctrinal and ecclesiastical characteristics of the primitive churches in order to be part of this unbroken and unmoved kingdom. As he closed his discussion of the mission of landmark Baptists, Graves confirmed his emphasis by affirming not the belief and advocacy of one or two of these principles as the marks of a divinely patterned church, but the cordial reception and advocacy of all of them constitute a full old landmark Baptist. The principles certainly imply a broad spectrum of doctrinal propositions to be believed. The tenth proposition stated, to preserve and perpetuate that primitive fealty and faithfulness to the truth that shun not to declare the whole counsel of God and to teach men to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded to be believed and obeyed. Most explicitly, however, Graves argued for the need to preserve and perpetuate strictly ecclesiological distinctives. The first of these Graves identified as the supreme authority of the New Testament as our only sufficient rule of faith and practice as the distinguishing doctrine of our denomination. I would add a fourth mark to those suggested by Baker. Everywhere implied in these three, that is, the perpetuity of true churches from the time of John the Baptist to the present. One point of the ten-point mission stated, to preserve and perpetuate the doctrine of the divine origin and sanctity of the churches of Christ and the unbroken continuity of Christ's kingdom from the days of John the Baptist until now, according to the express words of Christ. Graves wrote, If his kingdom has stood unchanged and will to the end, he must always have had true churches and uncorrupted churches, since his kingdom cannot exist without true churches. There is but one kingdom and one house which God calls the household of God, the church of the living God, and to be a pillar and ground of the truth. This kingdom, composed of the aggregate of true churches, has had continuous existence, or the words of Christ have failed. Now, Graves believe that every lover of Jesus should seek to know by incontestable historical facts that this kingdom of the Messiah has stood from the day it was set up by him. And he himself was so convinced by evidence that in his opinion was irrefragable. His commitment to this unbroken, incessant existence of such local churches, organically connected historically to one another, in full possession of all the characteristics of a true church, nevertheless was not an a posteriori evaluation from history, but an a priori assumption based on theological principles. Several declarations of Scripture, when synthesized, fittingly make this in grave system an unassailable proposition. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of four kingdoms, during the fourth of which the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, will never be transferred to another people, 
shall break in pieces all the other kingdoms and shall stand forever. This was an important piece of the doctrine. Emphatic commentaries, as Graves called them, on that passage were found in Matthew 16, 18 and Hebrews 12, 28. In the first, Christ clearly related this kingdom to his church, as Graves viewed the connections, when he told Peter, uh, Peter and the disciples upon Peter's confession, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church into which God brings his people is identified with the kingdom in Hebrews 12, 28 as a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The historical question aside, the theological proposition is determinative. To question it is to impeach the veracity of Christ and to leave the world without a Bible or a Christ. As surely as Graves believed in the deity of the Son of God, so did he believe that his kingdom has stood unchanged. So connected are the person of Christ and his faithfulness to the church he built that one cannot surrender the latter without giving up the other. Should we concede that Christ at any point surrenders his promise to sustain the church as his kingdom, we must concede that we can be taken out of his hand in our salvation. If he has not the power to save his church, Graves reasoned, he certainly has not the power to save me. An admission that Christ has not preserved his kingdom unbroken, unmoved, unchanged, and uncorrupted is to surrender the whole ground to infidelity, he emphasized. I deny, he further said, that a man is a believer in the Bible who denies this. This development of this, the development of this coherent system took form during the decade of the 1850s and seems to have been well in place by 1855. The last half of the decade was spent in executing a program of seeking to align all the Baptists in the South, particularly in the Southern Baptist Convention, with this viewpoint. Since 1846, a series of agitations, both with other Baptist editors, as well as the aforementioned Baptist, Pado-Baptist editors, led Graves to call for a conference of concerned Baptists to discuss a program of consolidation, defense of principles, aggressive propagation of Baptist doctrine, and education for Baptist ministers and laymen in the fundamental principles of landmark Baptists. W. W. Barnes, in his 1954 history, the Southern Baptist Convention, said that the resolutions at this conference particularly the five queries given below, constituted the first official pronouncement of landmarkism. Graves seemingly would agree with that historical judgment. As he said, this agitation gave rise to the convention, which met at Cotton Grove, West Tennessee, June 24, 1851, of all Baptists willing to accept and practice the teachings of Christ and his apostles in these matters. The minutes record how the conference was prepared for the presentation of the resolutions and what were seen as practical actions resulting from them. When Graves was granted the floor, he briefly explained the reasons for having called the present meeting, as well as its objects. He offered these resolutions. Resolved that it is our duty as the professed followers of Jesus Christ to use our utmost efforts and exertions to aid in every possible way the fulfillment of the Savior's prayer, as recorded in John 17, 20 and 21. Then in sustaining this resolution, he said, 
First, it is blasphemous to pray for the accomplishment of an object which we are unwilling and refuse to aid in accomplishing. The nature of our doing is the exact measure of the sincerity of our prayers. Second, he explained the oneness that he saw, that sought to be affected. Now, if, if I may digress on this point, Graves doubtless put forth his views here that the world may be brought to see the truth of the gospel by the unity of God's people on the terms given by Christ himself and seen clearly by the Baptists. When considering that unity could be considered on any other basis in the present state of division among those claiming to be of the church established by Christ, Graves said, Infidels could wish for no better argument against Christianity. I honestly believe that more infidels are made by those who preach, hold, and teach these absurd and unscriptural church theories than by all the speeches and writings of infidels themselves. Convince a man that it is true that Christ originated all these diverse sects and the author of their radically different and mutually destructive faiths and he must be an infidel or a fool. And then the third point that he made in defense of his call was how can this be effected? In discussing what is at stake in effecting such a program, Graves wanted the conferees to consider the question, can we recognize those sects as churches or branches of the Church of Christ which have not the organization, doctrines, membership, or ordinances of the primitive churches? If they were to give such recognition, Graves further queried, will we not aid in deceiving those Christians in them? Will they not say, if I'm a branch of Christ's church, is, it is all enough? Is not one branch as good as another? It is a serious question. Of course, Graves pointed out that if you're talking about branches that from the same tree, you don't find different kind of wood in the branches. It's the same kind of wood in all the branches. But if you examine the various so-called branches and you look into them, it's a completely different kind of wood. And so the analogy of the branch, he says, simply does not work. Brother Gale, who served as ad hoc moderator of the conference, followed, as the minutes say, at some length, glancing at the history of Baptist principles and the persecutions they have been called upon to endure for these principles. The resolution that is, to use our utmost efforts and exertions to aid in every possible way the fulfillment of the Savior's prayers recorded in John 17, 20 and 21, was passed unanimously. Reverend J.R. Graves then proceeded to offer the following queries, which he wished to be considered at this meeting and referred to some adjourned meeting. First, can Baptists consistently with their principles or the Scriptures Recognize those societies not organized according to the pattern of the Jerusalem church, but possessing a government, different officers, a different class of membership, different ordinances, doctrines, and practices as the church of Christ. Second, ought they to be called gospel churches or churches in a religious sense? Third, can we consistently recognize the ministers of such irregular and unscriptural bodies as gospel ministers in their official capacity? Fourth, is it not virtually recognizing them as official ministers to invite them into our pulpits 
or by any other act that would or could be constructed into such a recognition. And fifthly, can we consistently address as brethren those professing Christianity who not only have not the doctrines of Christ and walk not according to his commandments, but are arrayed in direct and bitter opposition to them? It was this particular question that made many people think that Graves contended that only Baptists could be Christians. Uh, And it called upon him to seek to explain and to defend his true conviction that there were Christians uh, throughout the world and other denominations. After considerable discussion which showed a unanimous feeling and sentiment, the queries were referred to a subsequent meeting. George Tucker offered the following preamble and resolutions which were adopted. Whereas the most violent assaults are now being made by the Paedo-Baptist ministry and press upon the doctrines, history, and religion of our denomination throughout the length and breadth of the Southwest, therefore resolve that we believe that the time has come when our ministers and members should fully prepare themselves vigorously to defend at all times and in all places the faith once delivered to the saints. And whereas... Through the publications and preaching of Paedo-Baptists, our doctrine and history have been most grossly misrepresented, therefore resolved, that we recommend to and exhort each minister of our denomination to preach a series of discourses during the present year upon the government, ordinances, and history of the Church of Christ to each congregation of his charge, and wheresoever else the cause of truth may seem to demand it and opportunity permits." Graves then offered the following preamble and resolutions, which were unanimously adopted, which proposed an aggressive program of defense and instruction for the propagation of Baptist principles. Whereas the object of this meeting is to consult the best measures to be taken by Baptists in this valley to repel the assaults of Protestants and Catholics upon our doctrines, religion, and history, and to correct their misrepresentations and disseminate a correct knowledge and understanding of our principles, therefore resolved that we recommend to the churches of our denomination to provide their ministers with a library of theological and historical books. Amen, right? That they may furnish themselves to the work of both teaching and defending in the pulpit or in public discussion our faith and practices. And resolved that we do unanimously recommend our churches severally to provide themselves with as large a library of books as possible, theological, historical, and miscellaneous, for the use of the members and all others in the bounds of the church who may wish to read. And finally, resolved that in order that our ministers may have access to the proper sources of information, in preparing historical discourses and in public discussions, and that our people may acquaint themselves with the writing and contradictory theories and positions, as well as the histories of the Paedo-Baptist sects, the versions of the New Testament in all ages, and such other more rare and costly works as will not be within the reach of individual or church libraries, we therefore recommend to the several associations in West Tennessee the formation of a Central Library Association which shall collect as soon and as fast as the funds can be obtained, a library which shall compri- comprise as far as possi- so far as possible to obtain these. These are the 
kinds of books then that Graves listed should be bought and put together into this library, which formed the basis then for the movement of Union University out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee to Jackson, uh, Tennessee. First, the writings of the ancient fathers, original and translated. Second, all the various ancient and modern versions of the New Testament. Third, all ancient and modern ecclesiastical and political histories. Fourth, the theological works of all paedo-baptist commentators, critics, and divines, ancient and modern. At least one copy of every lexicon of the Greek language ever published. One or more copies of every Baptist publication ever published in this country or in England. Seventh, miscellaneous works from time to time as the funds of the society will allow. Then he proposed that this society be in some central town of West Tennessee at Jackson, such as Jackson, and library room be procured and fitted up, and such regulations be adopted as will preserve the books and still render them accessible to our ministers and the members of the associations. Then another resolution, that a committee of one or more be appointed by the chair to present the subject before each association in West Tennessee at their next meeting. Then the minutes list Uh, the representatives to four other associations that were appointed, and then the following preamble and resolutions. Whereas the most violent and wanton attacks have been made upon the private character of the editor of the Tennessee Baptist by the Paedo-Baptist press and ministry throughout the entire Southwest for years past, therefore resolved that we regard such attacks on Christians wicked and malicious, yet such as would be brought against any Christian minister, who would take the Bible alone for his, uh, for his, uh, take the Bible alone for his authority, and assail boldly and fearlessly the anti-scriptural doctrines of the Paedo-Baptist, Protestant, and Catholic world? Resolve that we entertain the highest regard for Brother Graves as a gentleman and a Christian minister, whose course in religious discourses has ever been marked with a spirit of fairness and candor and characterized with a zeal that should ever distinguish every minister of Jesus Christ. In another resolution, they recommended the Tennessee Baptists as the paper best suited to repel the aggression and slanders upon us, our character in history, and of enforcing the doctrines of the cross in opposition to the traditions and practices of men. Among other resolutions was the following. Resolved that we boldly and fearlessly throw our banner to the breeze, Inscribed with the glorious motto, the Bible, the Bible alone, the religion of the Baptists, and that we do hereby repudiate all the inventions and traditions of men in matters of religion, all disciplines, confessions of faith, etc., which contain any of the relics of, the, of, of popery, strictly adhering to the plan of salvation as laid down in God's blessed word. With that affirmation, I bring this initial lecture to a close.